Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton and London's daily COVID numbers continue to hit records. We'll talk about that. The debt carried by Canadian households has hit an all-time high due to rising mortgage balances. Global's financial expert, Rubina Ahmed Haq, will join us and give us all the details. Members of the Ford government, including the Premier himself, have received donations from lobbyists hired by the private nursing home industry. Is that influencing how they make policy? And online classrooms are causing young readers to fall behind. What are we going to do to fix that? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What's going on with COVID-19 and uh, some alarming numbers? We talked about what's happening province-wide. And here in Hamilton, of course, uh, the other day, Dr. Richardson, Elizabeth Richardson, uh, the medical officer of health for the Hamilton area, suggested that we could actually go into lockdown mode if we don't uh, get a handle on what's going on. In London, Ontario, in London, Middlesex, the health unit there, the numbers are not as, as dramatic, but they are rising considerably, causing a great deal of concern. Uh, London, Middlesex health unit reported 38 new cases of COVID-19 on Tuesday. That's the highest daily count since the pandemic began in March and more deaths as well including a, a troubling time of course at the university hospital with more outbreaks there uh, that claims six lives uh, so many aspects of this going on here a couple of schools are, are reporting outbreaks in the London area too I'm trying to get a handle on exactly what's going on and uh, and the, the path forward here well, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Chris Mackey who is the chief medical officer of health for the London Middlesex uh, unit uh, doctor thank you so much for the time on a very busy day appreciate you jumping in with us for a few minutes not at all Bill happy to be here for anybody well, it's uh, the numbers are troubling here. The university hospital situation is is, is dire. Uh, we're seeing some outbreaks in the schools. I, I guess the first question we have to ask ourselves: Are we doing everything we can uh, to try to curb this and to try to to knock this curve down? You know, I think so many people are doing so much, and there are still a handful of folks that think it's okay to have you know house parties or potlucks or those sorts of things where uh, we know COVID will take the opportunity to spread. So, from a structural standpoint, though, Doctor, I mean, the things that we talked about way back in March and April uh, that we as a, as a community needed to do, and, and of course, that was uh, contact tracing, uh, positive, you know, testing, of course, uh, and things of that nature. And then, as you mentioned, isolation and, and a number of other things, if in fact you think you have symptoms. Uh, are, are we letting our guard down, too, when it comes to the things that we should be doing individually? You know, I think one thing that's happening is, well, so you've got COVID fatigue on one hand, and also you've got people looking for leadership. And so, you know, when someone's willing to open up their home and create an experience that feels like normal, uh, people jump at that. Uh, they don't necessarily want to be the one to offer it up, but if they see it, they'll take it. And that's just that's just really dangerous. And we, we need people to realize that just because somebody, you know, says it's safe doesn't mean it is. Uh, we're seeing people die every day in our community. This is now hitting the high-risk population. And we know with the holiday season upon us, uh, there's a real chance that, you know, these sorts of social gatherings will lead to uh, very bad outcomes for people and their family members. What's the uh, the latest, Doctor, on the status at the University Hospital? I know the flags are actually at half-mast today uh, because of the deaths that have occurred there. This is a, just a, a terrible circumstance that just seemed to, to fireball in in very short period of time. That's right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned in your introduction that we had record cases reported yesterday. Today, uh, our numbers will come out closer to 11, 11.30, but uh, we far surpassed yesterday's records. Uh, we had a number of new deaths. Uh, so we're really in unprecedented territory here in Middlesex, London. 
I know, Doctor, you mentioned that uh, with the color coding system, uh, which is really reflective of the numbers that we're seeing here. We mentioned that Dr. Richardson in Hamilton was suggesting that uh, Hamilton may actually end up in lockdown situation. Uh, you feel that you're moving into, into orange pretty steadily here, don't you? Well, and if we keep the case rates up that we have for the last three days or so, we will be in red very soon as well. So uh, it's, it's really a dramatic change here and uh, in the wrong direction. There's a study that was done, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, that uh, actually is being done by some of the schools in Toronto about testing uh, students uh, that have no symptoms at all. They're just doing random testing. And they started this a few weeks ago, as you know, and I think they found something like 19 or 20 uh, positive test that heretofore nobody had ever known about, uh, which raises the specter, are we doing enough there? And it, I, I think we'd always looked at the school statistics and said, you know, I guess we're doing pretty well here. But now there's a, a, a contrary point of view that suggests that, well, maybe maybe that's a Petri dish. Maybe they're not showing symptoms, but maybe those students in those closed environments are actually bringing the disease and, and spreading the virus to each other and bringing it back home. Well, you know, I think that uh, it's important work that's being done to to establish how useful that sort of testing is. It's also going to be different in a setting where you have much fewer community cases. So, you know, I'm concerned about where we are here in Middlesex and London, but we're nowhere near the case counts in Toronto, Peel, some of the bigger GTA communities, uh, even Hamilton. So, you know, if you if you did random testing in a place where there was little or no coronavirus circulating, uh, you're going to get a few positives, and they're most likely to be false positives. So it makes much more sense in a place where you have a lot of community transmission to be doing that random no-symptoms testing uh, because the positives you find are more likely to be true positives, for one, and you're actually going to find people, whereas, you know, we saw all over the summer, for example, when long-term care workers had to be tested, uh, even though the case counts were very low in our community, we saw a lot of positives that were false positives. Uh, because, you know, the test is designed to be very sensitive. And so Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a low rate in your community and you start testing people and getting positives, you know, with, you know, you follow up, you do a second test, you check to make sure that they've been following all public health advice. And as it turns out, many of those turn out to be false positives. So I think we're early to be using that here in this community. And, uh, you know, also it'll be important to see how useful that data is in Toronto. So when you look at outbreaks, uh, well, for instance, at uh, St. Marguerite Deville School in London, uh, are you concerned? I mean, every every case is concerning. I get that, but uh, but you don't see a trend here that that, that should you know bear attention. Where we've red flags about? Yeah. So the the outbreak in Margaret Deville is one case of transmission within a classroom. It's only the second case of transmission within a classroom that we've been able to document since the beginning of the school year. Uh, the classrooms here in London and Middlesex continue to be very safe. Um, I'm very happy that children are choosing to, you know, be in class. We have lots and lots of cases who are positive children who have not been in class, who have been remote learning or otherwise off school. Uh, so it's not like remote learning, you know, eliminates the risk. Uh, and, and really, two positives, you know, we will see more, there's no doubt, but two positives since the beginning of the school year that have been that have been acquired in schools is not concerning from Middlesex and London perspective. So, as far as you're concerned, the school numbers are to be expected, but but not alarming at this stage. Uh, which I guess is one of the reasons why the Minister of Education, Mr. Lecce, decided he wasn't going to extend the uh, the Christmas break over the season. That uh, it sounds rather odd to suggest this, but they're probably safer at school than they are in in their outside environments, given the the way that the the virus is acting these days. 
No, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, we've had close to 50 cases in schools here and, you know, 48 of them have been acquired at home uh, because of parents or other family members that have been positive. So the school environments are very safe. You know, if we were wearing masks in, in our homes and washing our hands every five minutes and, you know, cohorting and, and, and all those things, we would potentially approach the safety levels of schools. But uh, that's obviously not possible. Uh, you know, you can't exclude somebody from your home if they have symptoms the way that schools do. So uh, the schools are really a safe environment. And, I mean, we also know, you know, kids can transmit the virus, but much less frequency, much less frequently. So just kids being around kids is actually safe. It's, it's paradoxical because, you know, the opposite is true in most seasons uh, where, you, you know, influenza spreads very easily among kids. Uh, mm-hmm. We're just not seeing that with COVID. Well, here's hoping the numbers that come out later on today, as you mentioned, just around the noon hour, are going to be a little more encouraging than uh, we've seen over the last couple of days. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much, as always, for the time. Great talking with you again. Stay well. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Chris Mackey, Chief Medical Officer of Health for London Middlesex. As we mentioned here at Hamilton, uh, some concerns being raised too. And uh, Dr. Richardson uh, was quite vocal about this uh, just the other day, saying, look, if these numbers continue, uh, more restrictions are inevitable by Christmas, and we could end up in a lockdown. People will have been given ample opportunity to follow the control measures, and it's just not working. And so we're going to need to try to do something else to prevent, you know, our particularly our vulnerable from becoming very ill and dying, and we're going to need to prevent our hospitals from getting overwhelmed, and so we'll end up in lockdown. Yeah, we don't want to go there, and we'll see what the numbers are like in Hamilton a little bit later on today, as Dr. Mackey just said about the London Middlesex numbers as well. Glad you're with us today. Busy day today. The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, one of the uh, other aspects of uh, the economic statement that the, the federal government released the other day uh, talked about debt load, and it didn't get a whole lot of attention, but it should uh, because it's an ongoing problem. The debt carried by Canadian households has hit the $2 trillion mark for the first time, driven up by rapidly rising mortgage balances. First of all, credit rating agency Equifax uh, said in a report. Uh, I want to talk about that, and I also want to uh, bring in something else here, too. And It's a government program that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention that uh, I think a lot of people are going to jump into once they find out more about that. Uh, and that's uh, about a, a, well, a, a, a modest expense uh, credit that you can get at, at, for working at home, and a lot of us are doing that and probably will be for the next little while anyway. Joining us to talk about all this is Rubina Ahmed Haku, who is a, gr- a global financial expert. Uh, Rubina, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We don't talk about debt. We usually don't think about debt until those uh, those bills come in. Uh, you know, w- whether it's online or through the mail or whatever the case might be. Uh, but it's this is a, a problem that, uh, that is is getting bigger. By I was going to say by the week, probably even more so now that we're heading into the quote unquote shopping season. Yeah. So I mean, this debt is really being carried by mortgage holders, and the reason that mortgages continue to balloon is because interest rates are at rock bottom. And the Bank of Canada recently, in its latest uh, interest rate announcement indicated that they're probably not going to raise rates until well into 2022. So we're looking at rates staying here, uh, you know, for the next year, 18 months. And so if you're a home buyer and you're out there shopping, uh, you feel really comfortable going into more debt, you know, especially in places like southern Ontario where home prices have risen uh, double-digit gains in many cases year over year. Um, and you look at it and you think, well, I'll get into this home. It's a little bit out of my price range. It's going to be a little bit tight, but home prices seem to be going up, and I I feel really good about buying this place and and, uh, taking on more debt because I feel this is an asset that's going to rise in value, and that's why we're seeing uh, 
you know, Canadian households hitting the $2 trillion mark. Uh, who's waving the red flags or who's, you know, the, the, the caution flags, the slowdown here? I mean, when we went through these sorts of things, and you're right, it's never been as bad as it is now, uh, but there were usually, you know, there were some safeguards that were put in place. Sometimes it was the, the learning, the lending institutions themselves that would just say, hold on here. I, federal governments have tried to get involved with this by making it more difficult to qualify for mortgages. I think they've kind of backed off on that for the last little while. Uh, but uh, it, it just seems as if this thing is crying out right now for some kind of control. Yeah, and mortgage controls have put, put it been, been put in place. I mean, we know that the stress test was bought in a couple of years ago yeah. so that people had to qualify for a higher interest rate, even though they, the bank might give them a post, you know, a rate that was much lower. They had to qualify for the posted rate, which was four and a half, five percent in some cases. Um, and so that you had to show that if interest rates were to rise, you'd still be able to afford that mortgage. Um, you know, they've taken away the power of people to borrow money out of their home and buy investment properties because that's one way that people have gotten themselves into a lot of debt is that, you know, I'm in a home for a few years, the home value goes up, they give me a home equity line of credit, I take money out of that home equity line of credit and use it as a down payment on an investment property, really just debt, you know, paying for more debt because then you got to go get a mortgage for the rest of that, that property. And so part of that, part of that home value is really you've taken it out of your primary residence. So they've put some stops in place. Um, it doesn't seem like, with the economy now being in the situation that it is, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, from any level of government that they want to stop economic activity. Um, but, you know, Canadians are still very well suited when it comes to mortgages. Our default rates are still well below a half percentage point. Uh, but we are expecting those to rise. Um, not necessarily because of the debt that we've taken on, but because of many people who have deferred their mortgages um, are going to find it very hard once those deferrals come to an end uh, to actually start paying uh, their mortgages again uh, because maybe they have not been able to uh, gain the salary back or gain that job back that they lost because of the pandemic. We're not going to get into the situation like we saw back in 2008, 2009 in the States where people were just dropping the keys off of the bank and said, that's it, I'm out of here. Uh, there, are, there are some safeguards in place here. And uh, and I guess, as you mentioned, uh, the Bank of Canada has already said if there is going to be an increase sometime next year, it's going to be incremental. We're not going to see any – we're not going back to the 18 and 19% mortgages, I hope. No, I mean, we often talk about the 1980s and we you know talk about, like, Oh, when mortgages went up, uh, went, went up to, like you just mentioned, 18, 19%. And I mean, not that that could never happen again. I would never say never. But I, I, you know, I do believe that the Bank of Canada is not in the business of trying to bankrupt Canadians. Uh, they are going to be aware of the fact that when they raise rates, uh, it becomes more expensive for many people to afford their mortgages, those people who are in variable rate mortgages. Uh, you can safeguard yourself in some ways by getting a fixed rate so you know what you're paying for the next five years. Um, I've, you know, I, historically, variable rate has, has done very well for Canadians. People t- tend to pay less interest. Uh, but if you're feeling a little bit, uh, you know, nervous about what could happen with interest rates in the next five years, then, and especially at the top end of your mortgage, go and get a fixed rate. Fixed rates are pretty much close to variable right now, mm-hmm. anyways. Below 2%, it's, it's quite cheap. Um, that's going to help you to just manage your money for the, for the next five years. Uh, but yeah, we're not, the, the state has a very different system when it comes to mortgages. We have a lot more safeguards in place. We have to provide a lot more documentation to prove that we are making the money that we are. If anybody who is self-employed has ever tried to get a mortgage, you know that there is uh, an, a 
many, many extra layers uh, of documents that are needed in order to prove that uh, the income that you're stating is actually yours, that, that the home that they're going to be giving you the mortgage for, that you can actually afford. It's much different in the state, much more, I wouldn't say loose, but much more flexible in the way that they allow uh, uh, Americans to, to get mortgages. Rubina, got about a minute left here. As I said, uh, when Minister Freeland was talking the other day, uh, they also floated this idea about a, a personal tax reduction for people that are working at home. Uh, do you have to qualify for this? Do you have to to, to show that you're you're worthy? Uh, you know, how does how's this going to work? Do you know? Yeah. So this is four hundred dollars that they're going to um, give uh, to anybody that's been working from home during the pandemic. You don't have to provide receipts. You don't have to provide proof. Um, really, it's going to help cover what they're saying, modest expenses, uh, because many people, because they've been working from home, had to buy it, maybe, you know, an, an extra monitor or a printer or, you know, maybe some, uh, you know, lighting equipment so that you look great on your Zoom calls, whatever it is, the money that you've spent uh, sort of setting up a home office or recognizing that. You won't need to get a T2200, which you normally would from your employer to show that you incurred some expenses. This is a one-off. I just want to make that very clear. This is not something that's going to exist every year uh, because of the pandemic and because a lot of people have, uh, you know, rightfully so said that, you know, why I've incurred all these expenses because I had to set up my home office. So next year when you file your taxes, um, you can write off $400 of expenses without having to really prove what you spent that money on. Note to self, I better do that. I'm just looking around what I'm doing here at home. and <laughs> I, I think I'm in a list for this. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program and get your expertise on this, Rubina. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Rubina Ahmed Hock, of course, global financial expert. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on... Uh, transparency i guess in politics which is something that we all like to see and, and often don't rarely get and uh, in, in that lack of transparency sometimes we find ourselves uh, exposed to some statistics that can be rather troubling we spent an awful lot of time over the last couple of months uh, talking about long-term care facilities nursing homes uh, in the province of ontario and uh, they have been problems there long before the, the pandemic came along uh, and of course it's been exacerbated by what's gone on in the last little while. Uh, the Premier has promised action on that. There are some that are accusing the Premier of dragging his heels on much-needed reforms in that industry. Uh, now it's been reported that uh, Doug Ford's Progressive Conservative Party has received at least $30,000 in donations from lobbyists hired by the private nursing home industry. Uh, some of them actually former employees of the Conservative Progressive Conservative Party and the Ford government. This is all according to a Huffington Post uh, Canada analysis that was found. So what's going on here? And, uh, do those sorts of uh, payments, contributions, whatever word you want to use, actually have an influence on uh, the policies that are being developed? I want to bring uh, Dr. Vivian Stampalopoulos into the conversation, professor at Ontario Tech University and a long-term care advocate. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure. Uh, it's not too difficult to draw and connect the dots here, but you know, you, you make a donation, uh, and a number of people from this industry right now that have gravitated from working for the Progressive Conservative Party into the long-term care industry. Uh, it certainly looks like they're having some influence on government policy. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. And listen, donating is one thing, but when donations are tied to policy that have clear implications for residents, I mean, that's the problem. And that's why this conversation is being had now. So HuffPost has been really good at um, detailing not only the, the recent story with the 30,000 plus in donations, but how a lot of these previous board staffers are now working for these for-profit lobbyists. 
But also, I want to point out that one of the individuals who has a lot of power in this uh, Ontario long-term care landscape, who was not included in that recent uh, document, was uh, James Schlegel, the CEO of one of the largest for-profit um, providers in Ontario. And, um, you know, their uh, family alone, the Schlegel family, has donated over 20000 to Minister Elliott uh, since 2015. Um, that's just a portion of the 70000 he's donated to the PCs over the last few years. And incidentally, he's also on the key pandemic planning tables that have steered the direction of the long-term care. And we've been very critical that it has, quite frankly, been a bungled response. And um, you got to wonder, right? So you have people who effectively have, you know, paid to get their foot in the door. And this has been, you know, said by many different organizations. Um, you see families, long-term care families, residents who have a very hard time getting in contact with any ministers, let alone the Minister of Long-Term Care. But these lobby groups have a significant uh, pull over this government. And we see that the policies that have come out of the pandemic in particular have been very clearly in the favor of the industry and unfortunately to the disadvantage of residents and their family members. Well, and there's a, a number of examples. Let's maybe pick a few of them and, and, and yeah. you know, try to uh, you know, uh, connect the dots again on, on situations sure. like this. One is hiring. We know that, that these facilities oh, are badly understaffed, uh, oh, and yeah. we know that the Premier has said, yeah, we're going to do something about this. They announced their quote-unquote policy a couple of weeks ago, saying that they're going through this recruitment drive right now, and uh, we should be up to speed by about 2025. Uh, that's, oh, yeah. Oh. Quebec Quebec did this in the space of a couple of months. Now they're saying it's going to take them at least five years. I mean, really, I'm come so on. I'm so glad you mentioned this. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I'm very prepared to talk about this. So what they have done with the, uh, the labor strategy that you referred to, that was uh, November 9th, they released this plan to effectively hire unemployed and displaced retail and hospitality workers with zero skills in healthcare. And this work is very skilled healthcare work to work in what is arguably the most dangerous and vulnerable sector during the pandemic. So if that doesn't spell disaster, I don't know what does. And let's be realistic here. The reason why they didn't, for example, follow in Quebec's example, like you rightly mentioned, is because Quebec did something smart. They realized, well, they fixed one of the two problems. The two main problems that have led to this revolving door of workers in long-term care are both with respect to pay and then working conditions. They didn't handle the working conditions, but the pay was the big issue. So they offered not only paid training, but a guaranteed full-time salary to start of $50,000. And that is what Ontario just refuses to do. Instead, they are literally, you know, searching for the low-hanging fruit. So what they are doing is trying to find the least qualified workforce. Um, and we've seen unions fighting this for a long time, right? This is the race to the bottom that they've been openly fighting against the union, showing that this is, you know, just low-wage profiteering. And this has been a very clear pattern in Ontario in particular since the for-profit sector effectively took reign in, you know, the late 90s, thanks to Mike Harris. So that's when this all started. And we've seen a very clear flip of the staffing mix of these homes on its head, whereas before it was predominantly nurses. Nurses are a highly skilled and regulated profession. They're paid more, so they're more expensive. However, we saw that as the for-profit, you know, sector started to increase their dominance in Ontario, we see this suddenly change. And now today we have PSWs, personal support workers, who are an unregulated and less skilled workforce. They provided less training, far less pay. And now coincidentally, they are the largest share of the long-term care workforce. I think not. Right. And this recent shift, this hiring blitz focusing on what they call resident care aides, this new worker classification category is just despicable and it's so obviously in the interest 
of the lobby sector who have been trying to deregulate the long-term care workforce for decades. Uh, since you brought his name up, uh, oh. one of the names is uh, the former premier, of course, Mike Harris, who uh, I, I guess we should remind our listeners, uh, Doctor, is also a, a chairman of the board of one of the more the prominent, one of the more prominent private sector uh, uh, deliverers, and I use that term loosely of, uh, yep. of long-term care here. Oh no, I want to talk about Mike Harris, the gem of the man that thought, he is. Thought you might. Yeah. Oh yeah. So in 2001, CBC's Marketplace, they do phenomenal work on the long-term care sector, and they've been doing this for decades. They pointed out that during his reign, the biggest donors to the Ontario PCs party um, were the ones that won the contracts to build the billion-dollar, twenty thousand new homes under his reign. So what he did was he closed a bunch of hospitals, and then the allocation of those beds went to long-term care. And what we saw was that 68% of those 1 billion contracts went to for-profit companies, three giants in particular, Extendicare, Leisure World, and Central Park Lodges. And it's not, you know, coincidence that between that time, the Conservative Party banked over $336,000 from LTC lobby groups. And Harris profited very handsomely during his time, you know, setting up this model of for-profit dominance, because as you said, now he is indeed a board on Chartwell, which is one of the largest for-profit providers in Ontario. And in that part-time advising role alone, he's paid over $229,000. So this is what we, you know, when people say the conflicts of interest run deep and they have future consequences, I mean, this is exactly what they're talking about. And, And granted, you know, the it's not like this issue of for-profit lobbying came into power with Harris, but it's certainly set into motion a very dangerous pattern wherein this lobby, this for-profit lobby sector has become so important and so powerful in Ontario since the Harris days. And we've seen this since 2007, you know, as the most recent example, these for-profit corporations and their lobby have donated again over $340,000 to the Ontario PCs in particular. And you see that the, the, donations of political donations tend to go to the pcs first then the liberal second and then the ndp trail far below well i and again it's 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 very frustrating but i mean the the pattern here is quite simply it seems as if while he was still in power uh he used a lot of taxpayers money to basically grow the private sector of this industry uh and is now using that as his own soft landing uh, and and doing quite well as a result of that no question about it so here we are. are wondering if these things are going to now happen again, right? Well, they already are, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and let's, uh, since we're getting into that, let's talk about Bill 218, oh, uh, which yes. basically indemnifies <laughs> long-term care companies and, and a lot of other businesses, too, by the way, from lawsuits. Even, mm-hmm. even if they expose residents to COVID-19, even if they're found to be negligent, oh, yeah. oh, you negligent can't go after fine. them. Oh, yeah. Apparently, for our government, negligence is cool. It's totally fine to be negligent and effectively kill residents. No problem. But now you, you are forcing these poor families to prove gross negligence, which is setting precedent because this has never happened. And effectively, what they are doing here, they are changing the rules. They are interfering with the rule of law in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, lawyers are disgusted with this, as are the families. I talk to the families frequently, and they were livid when this was passed in lightning speed i remind everyone it was tabled first october 20th it became law november 16th in under a month you can rush to create a law that indemnifies both yourself because keep in mind the ford government was is also um they were filed a lawsuit was filed against them in june by a toronto law firm claiming they breached their duty of care to all ontarian residents in long-term care so they were also up against the lawsuit 
in addition to variety of bad actors, you know, often being the for-profit giants who were shown to fail in this pandemic. So, and the most offensive part, the law is retroactive to March 17th. So you are protecting these bad actors, bad actors that we read about and, and that shocked our nation, rightly so, in the military report. They, those poor families, are you telling me, might not receive any some sort of justice because you, instead of spending the last seven months, particularly over the summer, safeguarding the sector and doing what needed to be done. And trust me, experts were warning this government what needed to be done and have been sitting here, you know, putting their heads effectively through walls when, you know, the months have been passing and nothing has been done. But instead, you use that time to push through a law that effectively protects these bad actors from harming residents. Imagine how it feels for these families right now, knowing that they're entering the deadliest second wave and their residents, their loved ones in care, are less safe than they were in the first wave. And now that these homes have no incentive to actually step up their game, so to speak, and do better, because they're protected by this very unethical and disgusting legislation. Well, we heard some of those stories during the independent inquiry about that first wave and some of the living conditions, and it was it was gut-wrenching, actually, to listen to some of that testimony. But residents talking about feeling as if uh, they were like the, the kids at the border, the Mexican border, yeah. being in cages. They, they felt as if they were incarcerated. Uh, the yeah. tragic story that, that we talked about on the program last week, Doctor, about one resident that, that actually said uh, that they'd rather go through assisted death than, than go back into the nursing home for another wave of this. Uh, oh, that that yeah. tells you the severity of, of the circumstances they're in there right now no question about it and we saw this in the long-term care uh, testimony um from residents in the long-term care commission where they uh, you know they they said they felt like they were animals locked in cages and they'd rather die and we are seeing increases in medically assisted suicide because of the conditions in these homes during the pandemic and quite frankly a lot of that was tied to the mass detention orders that were unlawfully levied against this group of elders in care. This is completely discriminatory. The fact that the majority, and this is how I started my advocacy, I was really fighting against the the visitation bans and how these poor seniors were trapped in these homes and their families couldn't go visit them. You know, they were doing, families were lucky if they got one Skype visit a week for like the first four months. And we have to fight tooth and nail to get the caregiving policy that we have right now. And I'm happy to say that that policy at least is better than most of the provinces. So at least right now we have one caregiver who is always allowed in, even during an outbreak. But keep in mind, that was a fight. And the the government did not, you know, smoothly enable that process. That was months and months and months of advocacy and groups really showing that there is no evidence that families are bringing in the virus and that there are any risk to residents. If anything, they are helping to reduce the risk of confinement disease that we know is happening. So people are dying from isolation. People are dying from loneliness. They're not just dying from COVID. And that, that's what we saw. And this is what they're really fighting against, in particular residents. They don't want to be locked in these pandemic prisons ever again, nor should they be. How do we move from where we are now, though, Doctor, which is essentially warehousing seniors yeah. and, and, and frail and elderly people, uh, to a caring and, and, and empathetic environment, as, especially when it seems more and more as if uh, the, the voices they're listening to are the ones that write checks? It's a big problem. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I feel very... Um... I don't have a lot of hope right now in what's going to happen. And I think that's why a lot of us have now been pushing for national standards, because when it comes to relying on this province to do the right thing, I think we've seen over the past seven months, 
eight months that, that they just haven't in relation to long-term care. We pointed how they bungled the response in numerous ways. And, and I don't, I personally don't have faith that they're going to do the ethically and responsible right thing. And that's why we're really hoping that Trudeau, who started this conversation in the throne speech, not only saying that he would entertain national standards, but also increase the penalties and consider, you know, um, criminal negligence for a lot of these bad actors, which we need. Because right now there's zero accountability for these bad actors. They get off the hook. Uh, you know, I mean, I think there's the example in Hamilton. There's a family that, that had all of these long-term care homes. Uh-huh. And, and, they, and they kept failing. What was that family's name again? Martino. Oh Martino yes, family. Martino family. And we just saw yesterday, you know, they had a whole bunch of nursing homes. And they, um, because of negligence, they had to file bankruptcy. They lost that. Um, those homes, and it, and it cost the province millions upon millions. And now suddenly they were able to start again a couple of decades later and build retirement homes. And now those are being shut down because, again, we see the same negligence. So not only do we not hold these bad actors accountable, but we actually reward them. I mean, we, we heard also two weeks ago that Orchard Villa and um, Carling View Manor, which is a Rivera home, these were two of the hardest hit homes in the first wave, that they're being per- given money to create new beds so not only do you not hold the bad actors accountable you actually reward them under this government so we really need national standards and there's been dialogue very recently about um actually doing this so they will provide money they will meet the provinces in the middle but there have to be clear strings of accountability and this is what we need and um and it really does need to be of national you know purview because it's not fair that if you live in a different province you are guaranteed you know better access to care for for our seniors i mean this should the biggest problem that we did the you know when we created the canada health act leaving out uh long-term care and home care was a big mistake and every single government has just passed the buck along um, and never really addressed this issue. But we absolutely need a parallel form of legislation that addresses both of these because home care and long-term care, be it in an institutional or a home-based setting, the need for that is going to increase exorbitantly over the next decade as our aging population just continues to get older. I mean, in 2016, for the first time, seniors outnumber children since Confederation. So this problem is something that we have to address because it's going to hit ahead very soon. And we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we don't deal with this now. Well, it's going to take advocacy. And thank you for the great work that you're doing on this, Doctor, and so many others that we've talked to, uh, Carp and so many others that are trying to raise their voices, too. And I suppose uh, uh, the message here and the takeaway is that uh, we're going to be relentless about this and we're going to force governments to do something about this. We thank you to. so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time. Let's stay in touch as this, uh, as this continues because uh, we're not giving up and we want to see some, some real change here. I really appreciate your insight into this, though, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Vivian Stapelopoulos. Of course, uh, from Ontario Tech University and long-term care advocate, as you can tell. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When we uh, heard about the uh, the government's back-to-school plan that they uh, rolled out actually just before Labor Day, uh, about children that weren't going to be able to accommodate uh, and, and be able to move through the system uh, because of remote learning and some of the other restrictions that are being put in, obviously because of the pandemic. And uh, we're starting to see some of that now uh, with uh, some of the comments we're hearing from parents uh, and from for educators, for that matter, uh, especially when it comes to reading skills in retrospect, uh, that uh, uh, especially children between grades one and three, there seems to be a com- real concern right now about falling through the cracks and not developing and, and actually making that leap from reading to reading and learning. And uh, what's the government going to do about this? Do they even realize and recognize that it's a problem? Joining us to talk about this is Kristen Rishawi, who's the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Kristen, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. 
Oh, happy to join you. Thank you for having me. I don't know how difficult or easy it is for you to try to get straight answers from the education minister sometimes. we've Actually, we're endeavoring to get a hold of them for a segment later on this week to talk about things like this, to, to talk about shortcomings about the system and said, you know, we're not blaming you for the pandemic, but we are concerned about some of the policies you put in place to deal with the pandemic. And we're starting to see uh, some, I think, some very serious and legitimate concerns about children like this falling through the cracks when it comes to reading and, and, and understanding what they're reading. Well, yes. Yeah, so there's two studies out of the University of Alberta, and I would assume that, you know, the findings would hold for here in Ontario. Um, one of them looked at students in grades one through nine in Edmonton, and it was quite a huge number of them, I think about 4,000. And it did find that for the younger kids especially, so these are kids between grades one and three, um, typically kids who are learning to read, they were about eight months behind, and some of them were up to a year behind in their reading, um, just from last March, from the pandemic shutdown. Um it also found that um, another study of 600, 1,600 rather, grade one students, only one in five were reading at their actual grade level. Some of them had dropped down a couple of grades in that short time. So th- this troubling information, to be sure. And, and, you know, like I say, the initial reaction is, okay, it's, you know, we're, we're not blaming you. We're just saying, did you put the right program in place? Have you got enough safeguards to be able to, 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 to pivot and, and to try to help these students who seem to be falling behind? Uh, does the government even understand that the, there's a concern here and a problem? Well, I mean, I think everybody's understanding of the fact that last March, I mean, it was a quick pivot to online learning and nobody was really prepared for it. Um, you know, I did ask the education minister about it the other day uh, during his uh, press availability with the premier. He mentioned things like summer school, which the government did pour some money into. And, um, you know, they saw 70 percent more students service in summer school, um, some more online resources for them. They beefed up math tutoring and things like that. But, you know, there are concerns that the reading in particular um, kids have been affected. Uh, you know, there's a, another study out of Washington. It was a small study. It was with the 45 kids, but the entire second grade class had fallen behind. Um, some of them were reading at a kindergarten level. So this is certainly something that educators are very worried about. Um, and the province has talked about what teachers need to do more review and things like that. But I think people are looking for a bit more um, comprehensive program or something, some kind of provincial directive to help close these gaps. It's it's really kind of down to comprehension, and and, and I'm hoping that the the government uh, can understand the connection here. That uh, that without reading comprehension, learning is is stilted, if not uh, obliterated. I mean, if you don't understand what you're reading, maybe you can uh, maybe you can form the words, maybe you can read what's on the page. But if if it doesn't register with you, uh, you know, that's 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 a, a disconnected bridge. It's going to be very difficult to rebuild. Well, the thing with reading too is that it's crucial for about every subject kids want to learn. You have to read everything. Sure. I mean, even math, you think about it, you have to read problems, you have to be able to understand them in order to solve them. Um, you know, and there are the crucial years, as you mentioned, between grades three and grade four, where kids are learning to read, and then they kind of make the switch to reading to learn. So that's really the years that people are concerned about. Um, the other thing with literacy, I mean, early reading is linked to all kinds of things, like graduation rates in high school. I mean, you're four times, I think it's four times um, likely not to graduate from high school if you're not reading at grade level when you're in your primary years. Um, it affects everything like employment as well. So it's very important. So what are the possible solutions here? Have we, have we talked about this? And, you know, I, and again, we are handcuffed to a certain extent. I think we all understand that, you know, because of, of the pandemic. And because uh, the, the easy solution that comes to mind as soon as I saw this story the other day, Kristen, was, well, that means more one-to-one interaction between the teacher and the student. That's, that's not possible, almost impossible, as a matter of fact, in some of the circumstances they're in now. Well, that's the thing, of course, right? With the pandemic, some kids are learning from home. 
right? Um, you know, and online learning is no replacement for face-to-face. I think that's something that we've learned from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of that face-to-face intervention that kids need. You know, I've also heard from teachers who say having to wear masks, and they're not complaining about it, but they're just saying that it's difficult sometimes for kids to comprehend what they're saying. They can't get close to kids. I mean, you think about it growing up, generally you'd sit down with your teacher or, you know, uh, another fellow student, you'd sit close together and read. Well, you can't really do that anymore. So I think you need some kind of targeted reading interventions. But again, yeah, it is very tricky to do during the pandemic. Well, especially because it seems as if they've always got an eye to the bottom line. Because a lot of the things that we've talked about, whether it's long-term care reform or education reform, especially because of the pandemic, it's going to be costly. And we all know it's going to be costly. But time and time again, when I talk to to taxpayers, and I know you guys do on a daily basis too with your work, Kristen, the overwhelming majority seem to say, look, whatever it costs, Let's just make sure that nobody gets left behind. Uh, and, and you wonder if they, they, sometimes the government is just doing half measures because they do have that propensity to say, well, uh, you know, we can't really afford to do this right now. There is a, a better way, but it's a more expensive way. Yes, I mean, and obviously teachers are very expensive, right? Um, if you look at, for example, the Toronto Public Board, it was saying early on that, yes, you know, the province had given it extra money to hire teachers. Mm-hmm. It was also going to dip into its reserve to hire extra teachers. But there was no way that they could get all their classes down to 15 students, which is, I think, you know, what everybody sort of saw as the ideal number, you know, in just terms of of keeping kids' cohorts small and allowing for physical distancing. So what the board did instead, and it said, you know, look, this is not ideal, but it's the best way to spend our money is we're targeting those resources, the extra teachers, into hotspots, into vulnerable neighbourhoods, so we can get the classes low there, because those students are at particular risk of falling behind and falling behind even further. So they put the resources there to sort of help stop uh, the learning loss in that area. When you identify a problem like this, it it would seem that one of the next steps should be some sense of collaboration and, 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 and discussion between the two groups. First of all, the government that sets the policy uh, and those that deliver it. And in this case, let's get right down to the grassroots level, the teachers. Uh, but how much chance is that actually going to happen in a place like in Ontario, for instance, where, let's face it, the, the teachers and the government have a rather acrimonious relationship right now? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the government will say that it has been consulting and, and holding discussions with different groups, and I, and it, it, I believe it has. Um, but you talk to the teacher unions, and they say, well, either they're not included or they're at the table, but they're not being listened to, and that is a huge frustration for them. And, you know, you're certainly right. There is, <laughs> there's no love lost between the two sides in Ontario. Well, and, and therein lies part of the problem because, I mean, there's going to have to be some dialogue. I mean, this, this should be an example where they're simply saying, look, let's, for the time being, set our differences aside and just see what we can do to, to, to try to do what we can here for these students who seem to be suffering. But it goes back, and it just seems to me to be, uh, Kristen, another example uh, of the fact that, you know, did the government really have their act together when they decided on this back-to-school policy back in September? I think it really dates back to that. They were hoping that everything was going to work out, uh, and there have been some blips along the line with online learning and a number of other initiatives. Uh, and it, 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 I'm just wondering if these guys have the ability to pivot and said, you know what, we need to back off a little bit on this. Uh, you know, the minister these days seems to want to talk about the, uh, you know, the, the tax credits you're going to get for, you know, for, for students. You know, well, everybody's going to get money for a new computer screen or something. One Wonderful. That's a great initiative, but it's not addressing the real problems that we're starting to see and, and the cracks in the system. Well, if you look at Ontario, so it's pouring its resources into summer learning um, and online resources, in particular TVO and those educational resources. If you look at other provinces, PEI, for example, stands out uh, because it is the only province that last, I believe last March or April, they convened a table and were looking at the curriculum and how to reform it and modify it and tweak it 
to address the learning gaps that were coming because they realized that with kids being out of school for so long that there would be a significant gap and they addressed it very early on. It's something that some experts here have been calling for as well. Um, and they're also saying that maybe the provinces, maybe the federal government needs to bring the provinces together to discuss education. Everybody can learn from one another um, because everybody's essentially in the same boat with this learning loss. Yeah, uh, in a perfect world, that would be wonderful. But, you know, every time that we get any sort of a discussion between the federal government and the provinces, uh, the first reaction of the provinces is always back off. That's our jurisdiction. Uh, so because they're doing it with health care now, and they certainly would probably do it with education. So uh, I, the best of intentions, I'm not so sure it's actually going to work out that way. But, uh, you know, you got to try, I guess. You know, that, that seems to be the alternative. Anyway, uh, great reporting on this, and uh, great to have you on the program, Kristen, to uh, share some light on this ongoing problem. And uh, we'll be watching for your coverage in the Star over the next couple of weeks to see just how the government addresses this. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for having us here. Kristen Rushawi, of course, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.